Hey, good morning. It's good to be with you again. Turn with me your Bibles to Joshua chapter 24. Lord willing, we'll be finishing the book of Joshua today. If you're using one of the Bibles that we've provided you or you got on the back table, can be uh, the passage begins on page 198. <clears throat> you can see from the heading that this is a covenant renewal for Israel at Shechem. We read we just read our church covenant as a renewal to remind us of our obligations to one another. So I think we'll be helped as we consider this renewal that uh, Joshua and the Lord uh, initiate in Joshua 24 and help us in our own lives, both in our in um, our own devotion as well as our relationship to one another. I want to give you the the outline points beforehand. I'm going to refer to them often, but um, I'm sorry I didn't give you a a a, a sheet. Um, Our first point is consider God's gracious acts. Consider God's gracious acts. Secondly, God's grace compels us to serve the Lord. God's grace compels us to serve the Lord. And finally, God's grace is the basis of our service to the Lord. God's grace is the basis of our service to the Lord. So let's consider God's gracious acts. Let's begin reading in Joshua chapter 24, verse 1. This is God's word. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem, and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. 
but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went to the, over the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is God's word. Consider God's gracious acts. The Lord urges them to consider their beginnings, and in doing so, they see God's gracious acts. Your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates. Terah, the father of Abraham of Nahor, lived beyond the great river, and they worshipped other gods. So this was not a family that caught the Lord's eye because of their righteousness or their faithfulness. They were worshipping other gods. They were polytheists. They had households full of gods. And in verse 3, the Lord says, And I took your father from beyond the river, Abraham, from beyond the river, and led him through the land of Canaan, which is pregnant, pregnant in meaning itself. The Lord mentions Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor. Yet God did not appear to Nahor. God appeared to Abram. There was nothing in this family that compelled the Lord to act. There was nothing special in Abraham that compelled him to act over his brother. In fact, he didn't even come to Abraham. He came to Abram, an old man who had a barren wife, advanced in years. And he gave him a new name, Abraham, the father of many. God not only chose because of his sovereign choice, he sovereignly chose to bless And he promised Abraham the land of Canaan. And he fulfilled his promise to Abraham, and he made his offspring many. And he gave him Isaac, the child of promise. And he didn't just stop there with Isaac. He, gave, he fulfilled the promises of Abraham and Isaac. And he gave Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. But lest we confuse God's gracious acts with flowery beds of ease, we see that God treated Jacob and Esau differently. Malachi says to Jacob, God loved, but Esau he hated. But here we see to Esau, he gave the hill country of Seir to possess. And to Jacob, him and his children went to Egypt. This is important for us to remember. We would expect this to be reversed. God would certainly bless the uh, um, bless the one he loved and not not bless the one he hated but nevertheless I think God refers to Jacob and Esau in this way to show us that we must still consider the larger context of God's gracious acts even in the midst of most difficult and challenging circumstances of life we can't look at every single thing that happens to us and goes this is this is God's this is evidence of God's gracious acts because God is kind to all people. He allows the, the rain to fall on the righteous and the just. 
But then in verses 5 through 7, we see another way that God invites them to consider his gracious acts. And he says, and for you, Jacob, you who went to Egypt, see how I cared for you in Egypt. See how I cared for you in the midst of your difficulty. Because even then, God sent Moses and Aaron to Egypt and God plagued Egypt and he brought them out. Consider the mighty wonders of the plagues that I placed on Egypt. Did you experience any of those, Israel? Not a one. And God brought them to the sea. The Egyptians, the greatest army in the world with their chariots and horsemen, pursued Israel. And you cried out to the Lord, and I placed darkness between you and them. And I brought you out on dry land while I covered them with the sea. You saw what I did to them. And then the Lord invites them to consider his gracious acts in the wilderness in verses 8 through 10. He says, I brought you to the land of the Amorites on the eastern side of the Jordan. They fought with you, but I gave them into your hand. You took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. And then Balak hired Balaam to curse them, but God would not listen to him and he blessed them instead. It's interesting that there's no real indication here that Israel ever had any idea at all that, that Balak had hired Balaam to curse them. None at all. But yet God knew. God, Israel could do nothing about that. But God knew and turned the curse into a blessing. He delivered them out of the hands of Balak. And he invites them to consider his gracious acts after they cross the river Jordan into the land in verses 11 through 13. You cross the Jordan. Again, consider the gracious act and how they crossed the Jordan on dry land. The leaders of Jericho fought against them. That was a fortified city and the city and the city and the people of Jericho were so outmatched. We don't even have a record of a fight even taking place. They were destroyed before Israel's eyes. Not to mention all those other regional powers that came out against Israel and not a one of them stood. God gave every one of them into their hands. And God said he sent the hornet before them. Was it an actual hornet? Probably not. But it's a reference to uh, uh, Exodus 23:28, Then a promise that he would go before them. He would send a hornet to strike fear in the people of the land. And uh, early on in their wanderings, he would drive the people out before them. And he did. Fear was struck in the people of the land. What do we hear Rahab said? Our hearts melted before you. Not because of their sword or their bow, but because of the Lord. And God gave them land on which they had not cleared. Cities they had not built, uh, cities in, they had not built in which they dwell. And they eat vineyards and orchards of which they did not plant. I think this section is interesting in how it begins by talking about their fathers. And then in verse 6, he says, and you came to the sea. He says in the next sentence, they pursued your fathers, but when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians. While it's possible he's talking to people who at this moment who were very young and they did come out of Egypt, Odds are many of these people were born in the wilderness. But he lumps them all together saying, I've shown my faithfulness to you through my faithfulness to previous generations. 
You can have confidence in my gracious acts for you, um, my confidence in my gracious acts for you in reflecting on my gracious acts for your fathers, in my gracious acts for Abraham, in my gracious acts for Isaac, in my gracious acts for Jacob. And I don't believe that this is true just for the people of that promised land generation. I believe it's true for us as well. We can look at God's gracious acts toward Abraham and we can see ourselves, can we not? God interrupted us in our sin. He didn't choose us because we dazzled him with our righteousness. He graciously plucked us out. We can look at our families. We can look at our classmates. We can look at our friends and we have no reason to think that we were given new life apart from God's gracious acts on our behalf. There is nothing righteousness in me that compelled God to choose me. Abraham is our father by faith. Nahor could have very easily been our father. That could have been our heritage. We were by nature people of Esau, whom God hated, but God graciously grafted us into the tree of Jacob. Of course, our lives haven't been easy. In fact, we can probably name a handful of unbelieving friends who are having a far easier go at it than we are right now. Yes, we can find ourselves in trying situations at work, situations in which we can be convinced that people have ill intent against us. Situations in which we can be taken advantage of. Situations in which people may walk over the top of us for their own advancement. But we are a people with a history. We have seen how God was mindful of Jacob when he was taken advantage of by Laban. And he brought him out with great possessions. We have seen how God was mindful of Joseph, how he was sold into slavery and he, was faithful, and he faithfully labored in conditions that he believed took him far away from the eyes of God. And we have seen how Balaam sought to curse the people of Israel and the father turned it into a blessing. We are a part of a people whom God has said, I will curse those who curse you and I will bless those who bless you. And we have found God, God gracious even in these seasons. And we consider our end. And we have been given insight to be able to work backwards toward, from, from eternity before the throne of grace to be given encouragement even in these difficult stages of life to know for certain that today we would choose this path that the Lord has us on rather than the path of ease that our unbelieving friends are on. God has truly been gracious to us. And we have millennia upon millennia of records of God's faithfulness to a people, to his people of whom we inexplicably find ourselves a part of. Consider God's, the history of God's gracious acts. Secondly, in verses 14 through 18, we see that God's grace compels us to serve the Lord. God's grace compels us to serve the Lord. Let's begin reading in verse 14. Now, therefore, 
Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites, who lived in the land. Therefore we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. God's grace compels us to serve the Lord. So in view, Joshua says, so in view of God's gracious acts, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Turn away from the gods that the Lord pulled you from and serve the Lord. When God took Abram out of Haran, he didn't return there. Similarly, when God called Abram to himself, Abram left behind his other gods to serve the one true God. Why? Well, because God revealed himself to him and promised him many amazing things. As Hebrews 11:14 says, if Abraham had been thinking of that land from which he came, he would have had an opportunity to return. But he desires a better country, a heavenly one. Abraham's gaze has been turned heavenward. God's gracious acts compelled Abram and later Abraham to serve him. It just makes sense, right? So like their father Abraham, Joshua tells Israel to make a similar call. Turn away from your old lands. Turn away from your foreign gods and serve the Lord. But in verse 15, he says something very provocative. He says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. The gods your father served beyond the Euphrates that God called his people out of? Or the God of the Amorites in whose land you now live? When Joshua says, choose whom you will serve, he is calling them to consider God's gracious acts. Do you want to serve the gods that Abram turned his back on that never did a thing for him nor his family? Or do you want to serve the gods that revealed, uh, that revealed the God, serve the God that revealed himself to Abraham, that made him the father of many nations, that promised to give Abraham the land 400 years earlier in which you are now standing? Or if not those gods... How about the impotent gods of the Amorites or the Perizzites or the Girgashites or all the otherites? You know, all the people that I've conquered before your eyes? You know, those kings that you had your foot on? All of those gods that those, of those nations? You want to serve those gods? This is a choice to us as well. Will you serve that the God that has given you new eyes and a new mind and a new disposition to live for the Lord? Or will you freely turn back to a cloudy moralism that 
wrongly thinks that you can do good your way to heaven. Being a nice, likable guy who is generally good and upstanding, who says yes, sir, and no, sir. Thinking that you can somehow skirt obedience and dedication to the Lord and be the first person in Christian history who didn't have to identify with Christ and take up his cross. Thinking that you will be the one person in Christian history who is able to love both the world and love God effectively. Never mind that Jesus tells us that if you love the world, you're at enmity with God. But this is a choice that you have to make. Joshua makes that clear. If you're choosing to serve the gods of this world, you are saying that it is evil to serve the Lord. But that seems drastic. I mean, when would that... When would we ever think that it would be evil to serve the Lord? Every single day. We hear people talk about how hateful it is to hold Christian positions on same-sex marriage or gender identity or abortion. That we should be more loving. We are characterized as evil if we stand against the slaughter of babies that God has sovereignly knitted together. Our daughter texted us on Friday telling us that she's been given an assignment in college where she is to read a scholarly article about how being raised in a religious environment is harmful to the mental health of LGBTQ plus um, uh, people and write a discussion post about it for her class. It is evil in the eyes of the world. It is evil to serve the Lord. So decide, who are you going to serve? But make no mistake, you've got to choose. As Bob Dylan says, you've got to serve somebody. Everybody does. He says, you may be an ambassador to England or to France. You may like to gamble, you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. You may be a businessman or a high degree thief. They may call you doctor. They may call you chief. But you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Who are you going to serve? Well, Joshua plants his flag. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This isn't a throwaway line. And then, all of a sudden, the coffee mug industry came into effect. You know, now we've got the first thing to put on a coffee mug. This is not the throwaway line. It is true. We choose who we must serve. Who are you going to serve? Well, the people get the message in verse 16. They've heard Joshua's speech and the Lord's words. God's gracious acts compel them to serve the Lord. They say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight. And preserved us in all the way we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. 
Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. In verses 19 through 33, we see that God's grace is the basis for our service to the Lord. God's grace is the basis for our service to the Lord. Let's read verses 19 through 28. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. And he said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set, up, set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. God's grace is the basis of our service to the Lord. Verse 19 is one of the most jarring verses in the Bible to me. He's just spent 18 verses impressing upon them the need to serve the Lord. And here he pulls the rug right out from under them and says, you're not able to serve the Lord. Why does he do this? I believe there are a couple of reasons why he does it. The first one is found right there in, verse, in that verse. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Joshua has told them, decide who you're going to serve. And he's given them very compelling reasons to, for serving the Lord. And they've agreed. They've said, far be it from us to forsake the Lord and serve other gods. We will serve the Lord for he is our God. Isn't that what Joshua wanted to hear? They've made a commitment to serve the Lord. What else do you want? I don't believe that's the reaction he was looking for. Look back at verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Look down in verse 23. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, get rid of your old gods. Any commitment to serve the Lord that doesn't begin with turning your back on your old gods or on your current gods is a half-hearted commitment at best that is doomed for failure. And it's not acknowledged by the Lord because he is a jealous God. Don't think that you can serve them both. You can't. 
But I don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, what do you mean by other gods? I don't have any other gods. If you're wondering what to pray for in your quiet time this week, that would be a good place to start. Lord, please reveal the gods in my life that compete with you for my affections. This is of the utmost importance. Verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after doing you good. Just because the Lord has sworn you and has shown you tremendous kindness and called you away from rebellion and dark ignorance, do not presume upon him by continuing to toy or dabble with foreign gods of the world or in the culture. He will turn and do you harm after having done you good. I think the second reason he says that you're not able to serve the Lord is because you are not able to serve the Lord. What is our basis for serving the Lord? We could easily be led, listen to me, we could easily be led in this passage to think that Joshua's message is, after all that God has done for you, the least you could do is serve him with your life. That what's at work here is some debtor's ethic. Look, I saved your life. You owe me. Okay, I'll do it. I promise I'll do it. That the purpose of Joshua's rehashing of God's gracious acts is to drum up enough appreciation and admiration that the people are worked up into a frenzy, that they've got enough resolve to carry them through the end of their life serving the Lord. And if that's the case, then we can look at verse 19 as kind of a coach's locker room tactic where he's like, the people out there don't believe that you got what it takes to serve the Lord. And frankly, I don't either. I don't believe you've got what it takes. And they go, no, 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 we'll show you. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to double down on our profession. No, but we will serve the Lord. But that's not what's going on here. He's saying you're not able to serve the Lord. But you know what? Abram wasn't able to find God and make a covenant with him. Abram couldn't have one child, much less father and nation. Abraham couldn't get this land for himself. Israel couldn't extricate itself from Egypt. Israel couldn't defend itself against the Egyptian pursuit of chariots and horsemen. Israel couldn't stand against the Amorites. Israel didn't even know about Balaam. How could it turn a curse into a blessing? Israel couldn't bring down the walls of Jericho. Israel couldn't defeat them. Israel couldn't strike, the fear, strike fear in the Perizzites or the Girgashites or all the otherites. They didn't clear the land. They couldn't build cities. They couldn't plant those vineyards. They couldn't plant those orchards. No, God did that. And in verses 2 through 13, 18 times, God says, I did it. I did it. God fights for you. God is a rescuing God. 
God is a covenant-keeping, resolve-building God. God is a conqueror. And God is a jealous God. The basis of our service to the Lord is Him. He is the reason that we can serve the Lord. He will go before you. He will protect you. He will provide for you. He will drive out the opposition to your faith. But even as he promised to send the hornet before them to drive out all those who opposed them, he said it would not be all at once, lest the wild beasts too many be too many for them and overrun them. Do you remember that? And so for some reason, he has said that I will go before you and I will, I will defeat your enemies and I will provide a way for you. But some, for some reason, God will not drive all our temptations out at once this life is sir of service to god is faithfully living as god takes down our enemy block by block house by house room by room mind by mind heart by heart word by word glance by glance lie by lie thought by thought until this conquering rescuing saving work is fully accomplished on the day of Christ's return I'm not sure the people there that day understood that they continued to make declarations and pronouncements of their resolve to serve the Lord Joshua heard their words and set up a stone as a witness of their commitment to serve the Lord. So how did it go? Was it mission accomplished? Did Israel live happily ever after? I don't want to ruin the story for you, but if you flip your Bible over to the next page and look at the heading of Judges chapter 2, Israel's disobedience. So where does this leave us? Does this mean that, mean that God's promises are not certain? Does it mean that the people of God actually have no hope? If this doesn't work, well, what are we supposed to do? How do we as God's people live? We can take our cues from this chapter and the previous chapter on how we are to live. So, what are we to do? The first thing is repent. Repent. What is our first response to God, God's gracious acts? Repent. We see it in verse 14. Fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity. Serve Him in faithfulness. And put away the gods. Be done with the things that you were previously trusting in for your security, for your well-being, for your life, for your provision, for your eternity, and for your fulfillment. Repent of your dependence or reliance upon anything other than the Lord. Has not the Lord proved himself faithful both in redemptive history and in your life up to this point? Joshua says, put away the gods. And the people say, 
We will serve the Lord. Joshua says in 19, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy and jealous God. But the people say, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua says in verse 23, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord. And the people say, the Lord we will serve. In his voice we will obey. But they're not obeying. He's calling them to put away their foreign gods and they keep saying, we'll serve the Lord. But they give no indication or intention of giving up their gods. I never put these two things together before, but I had experience with this. I was visiting a guy a few years ago that tried to drink himself to death. And God had indescribable mercy on him and gave him health and gave him a new liver. And I went to see him in the hospital and he said that God had really gotten his attention this time. That he really meant it. He wanted to live for God. And I asked him, what does that mean? How is he going to do things? And he talked about, I'm going to do things for God. I'm going to do things for people. I'm going to get more involved in charity work. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a better man. And I basically used Joshua's words to him without even realizing it. I told him that that was not going to make a hill of beans difference to God. Rather, his first step was one of repentance. And he said, oh, believe me, I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm like, this is not about drinking. Drinking is the symptom of your, of your rebellion. You're drowning out, the, you're, you're, you're suppressing your rebellion against God. I explained that his life was just one big balled up mess of self-sufficiency and pride. He took great offense when I told him that his life didn't give any evidence of him trusting in Christ for anything. I told him to begin with repentance. And if he didn't know what repentance, what he should be repenting for, ask his wife, ask his kids, or pray and ask the Lord to reveal what repentance would look like and what gods he needed to to turn from. And he never ever got to repentance still hasn't God is a jealous God repent of your dependence and your reliance on anything other than Christ for your identity your joy your fulfillment your future or your life you will never ever be able to do enough serving of the Lord to obscure your love and worship for things other than for him You're not going to be able to wave enough shiny objects before the Lord to distract him from the fact that your heart is not completely his. Repent. Secondly, cling. Cling. How are we to stand against all the things of this world? We cling to the Lord. Pastor Tim showed us that last week from Joshua 23. In verses 7 through 10, don't mix with these nations among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. 
One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. We stand by clinging to the Lord. We are strong by admitting that we are unable to do any of this on our own, but rather placing our trust in God and his gracious acts. I mentioned a few weeks ago that this is the first book of the Bible I ever studied. And then I picked it up again uh, in the middle of 2000. And as, as I prayed, I asked the Lord to show me the foreign gods in my life, what I needed to turn away from and to put away. And it became very apparent to me that I was dependent upon alcohol. This isn't a demon rum sermon. I've used two alcohol illustrations. It just happens to be with what's going on today. Don't worry about it. But alcohol was there when I wanted to celebrate a big deal. Alcohol was there when I had a long day and was discouraged. Alcohol was the constant God who provided the rhythm to my days. Monday night, I'd meet the guys at the restaurant. Tuesday and Wednesday, I would drink wine by myself at home. Thursdays and Fridays, I would drink scotch at the bar. Saturdays, it was special occasions. Sundays, it was margaritas with a group of guys on the patio. I remember driving home one day down Southwest Freeway toward my apartment. I saw a billboard for a, a scotch. And the thought popped into my head, why would you give your discouragements and your victories and your joys to a bottle rather than the Lord? And I went home that day and I knew that I'd taken my last drink. I didn't realize there was a girl in Salt Lake City praying for those very things. I ended up marrying her. But I remember praying that day, Lord, I know what you're calling me to do. And I am certain that it's you that's calling me to do this. And I have never been so scared in all my life. And I have never felt as naked and as vulnerable as I am right now. But I know that you are calling me to do this. And you will provide a way. And I was holding on to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. This is what serving the Lord looked like to me in that instant. Clinging on for dear life to the one who had shown himself faithful. My faithfulness was possible because of his faithfulness to me. You may wonder why I had us read the church covenant today. We don't normally do that. And it seems an odd thing since I'm kind of down on Israel's covenant. No, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Aren't we doing the same thing in our church covenant? But I direct your attention to the bulletin for a second. Look at it. In the very first line, we acknowledge God's gracious acts. We say, having been brought by divine grace to repent and believe. We acknowledge that the only way we may give up ourselves to him is because of his divine grace. 
And then toward the end of the preamble, before we covenant with one another to do these things, what do we say? We say, relying on His gracious aid. We understand that we cannot do this apart from God's gracious aid. And then, about six bullet points down, we see in the church covenant, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Remembering, remembering God's gracious acts as, as evidenced in our baptism, as evidenced in our new life. Remembering what God has done. We realize that we can only live a new and holy life with God's divine aid, trusting in God's gracious acts. And then the covenant ends with a prayer that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us. We're dependent upon the Trinity in this covenant. God has given us his threefold self to equip us and sustain us to live for him. We cannot live for him apart from him. So we've talked about how we are to live by repenting and clinging. And finally, remembering. Repenting, clinging, and remembering. Joshua begins the chapter in his covenant renewal by reminding them of God's gracious acts. These things are to be remembered. In fact, peek over at verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that God did for Israel. This is our history as well. We need to remember God's gracious acts. We are a part of God's history of redemption. It's still being written. God's history of redemption is still being written. But we must not forget how God has provided for those who have come before us. And we have seen his promises fulfilled and we are to remember how God has saved us. We should rehearse our salvation often. Why do we speak of the gospel every week? Because we never want to be far away from it. We want to remember it. I mentioned this a bit ago, but turn over to Judges 2. Judges 2, verse 10. In all this generation that made the covenant renewal, all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This is why we sing the hymns we do. This is why we study whole books of the Bible. This is why we tie every passage back to the big theme of redemption. To remind us of God's gracious acts so that we may remember. 
J.I. Packer wrote, The traveler through the Bible landscape misses his way as soon he loses sight of the hill called Calvary. We can easily lose our way if we don't remember the gracious acts of the Lord. Let's finish reading the book, verses 29 through 33. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And so we come to the end in the seeming culmination of six books worth of promises. When Joshua started his farewell address, he knew that this wasn't the end of the story. In 23.14, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. Even as he said these things, he knew that he was about to die. That this was not the end of the story. Also, one of God's promises is that the wages of sin is death. And it is appointed for man to die and after that to face judgment. Joshua knew that his hope wasn't found in a grave in a hill on Ephraim. He knew that Joseph's hope wasn't to have his dusty bones moved to a hole in the ground in Shechem. Eleazar's hope wasn't found in a pine box in Gibeah. All these men died knowing that God is a faithful, trustworthy God. This isn't a triumphant end of the book, but it is a realistic end of the book at the end we see that God has been faithful but we also see that this isn't the end you would be justified to think that this is the end of the story everyone's in the land mission accomplished but even as we've just seen we turn the page and the story goes on but based on what we've just read about the next generation You'd also be justified to think that man's sin and unbelief is capable of undoing every one of God's promises. But we can agree with Joshua even now and say that not one of God's good promises have failed. For all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who lived the perfect life and served the Lord with every breath, who served him with every thought and with every deed where we didn't and we couldn't. He served the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness the way we were called to. Joshua warns us that God is a jealous God and if we will not repent, we will be consumed by God's holy wrath. But Jesus stood in our place and absorbed the full 
absolute, unmitigated wrath of God. He took the penalty for anyone who will ever turn from their sin, who will ever put away their foreign gods of pride and lust and greed and ambivalence toward God and his commands. For anyone who will ever turn away from those things and trust in Christ and Christ alone. And he was raised for our justification. Yes, we will die. But because we trust in God's gracious acts shown in Christ Jesus, that is not the end of the story. Anyone who trusts in Christ, though he dies, will not be put to shame. These men here have yet to receive what's fully promised to them. They will receive it when we do. When Jesus comes again. And he said he would come again and we will dwell with him forever in heaven. God is trustworthy. Consider his gracious acts in history and in your life as well. He is worthy of the praise of your life. He is trustworthy. He is worthy of us entrusting our lives to him for he is far more than capable. He is God. Truly, where else would we go? In whom else would we trust? Why would we hand over eternal lives to a God of our own fabrication? Who we know doesn't pay off beyond the moment in this world, much less beyond the grave. Place your hope in him by repenting of your sin. God graciously reveals our gods that we are trusting in over and over. This is a lifelong exercise. Place your hope in him by clinging to him. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Place your hope in him by remembering. Remember that he's shown himself faithful throughout all generations. Remember his promises often and stop gazing longingly at the world. Remember how he has saved you from unbelief and from darkened understanding. And remember that this life is not the end of the story. Live for the hope of eternity that awaits those who place their trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are a covenant-keeping God. We confess of our inability to provide a righteousness for ourselves. But Father, we thank you for your gracious acts on our behalf that began in eternity past, where you, your eyes knew our unformed substance when all of our days were ordained before one of them came to be. Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace. And we cling to you knowing that you are our only hope and our strength. Father, help us to remember of your acts on our behalf and encourage one another with those acts as we await the day when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.